Last night I was dressed in tails, pretending I was on the town. Long as I can dream, it's hard to slow the swinger down. So those don't give a thought to me, I'm really doing fine. You can always find me here, I'm having quite a time. Pop counting flowers on the wall, that don't bother me at all. Play in solitaire till dawn with the deck of 51. Smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Now don't tell me I've nothing to do. It's good to see you. I must go. I know I look a fright. And my know my eyes are not accustomed to this light. And my shoes are not accustomed to this hard concrete. So I must go back to my room and make my day complete. Counting flowers on the wall, that don't bother me at all. Playing solitaire till dawn with the deck of 51. A smoking cigarettes and watching Captain Kangaroo. Now don't tell me I've nothing to do. Howdy, howdy, howdy. What's up? How's everybody's Friday? How's it going? Ah, thank you. Thank you for the compliment about my hair. I know that uh, it's only a few years before I have to face the reality of the possibility of sides, which I really don't think I can pull off. But I also know I'm never going to shave my head. But for now, I still got this little, this little brave... Uh, peninsula holding out, although it is very much like the Florida seacoast. It is eroding uh, under conditions, but that's fine. Whatever. I will never shave it. I don't want to be one of those guys because I'm committed to the beard. And the beard bald head thing for a white guy is just a look, especially a gentleman who is large as I am. I mean, I am I am tall at the very least, you know, and, and kind of wide, to put it charitably. It's just not a look that I think uh, is me. So I'm just gonna just gonna hang on to the dregs. I really do feel like that's the bravest option. Feel like there is something of a surrender to shaving your head. I mean, you can divide Bruce Willis's career in half between when he cared and when he stopped caring. And the dividing line is when he started shaving his head. Uh, Pulp Fiction is the first movie where he shaved his head, and that doesn't count because that is related to the character, and it is it is a it is a actor choice. It clearly is an actor's choice. But once he shaved it, I think he looked in the mirror and was like, I'm just going to stick with this. And every movie he made, once he started just shaving his head as a look, as his signature look, sucks. I mean, look at the Die Hard movies. I mean, obviously, they're going to get worse as they go along, but it's also striking. First three Die Hards, he's got that tenacious little strip in the front, and it's slowly going away. By Die Hard 3, he's just, like, holding on to by bare life. And then the, the last one's Drek. But that's not, and it's, they're Drek for other reasons, but that doesn't help. That is not John McClane. 
And I mean, God bless the guy. You know, he's given us hundreds of hours of entertainment, and now he's apparently uh, got dementia after being abused, elder abused by a bunch of unscrupulous scumbags in Hollywood, having him churn out DVD movies in a factory setting where they just get uh, some over 60 actor who's got to make payment, like alimony payments, or is trying to buy an island, which I bet a lot of these guys are. Uh, 12 Monkeys is another one where it's a fucking choice. Like you, the bald head in uh, 12 Monkeys is a choice. He is an institutional. Uh, he's like, what are the guys they have in this future jail? Like he's a pot. He's like a guy in uh, any other sci-fi movie where it's a number, not a name like THX or whatever the fucking uh, George Lucas movie with Robert Duvall, who, by the way, never shaved his head. Otherwise, even though his, his, his hair was just going away. And I really think you can pinpoint exactly with, with Willis why and when he stopped caring. With a lot of these guys, you can just see entropy check-in, where it's like, you know, the, the thrill is gone, but they still have expensive tastes to fill the hole that the lack of thrill has left within where there's no room for spirituality for any of us. Not blaming them. I'm talking about everybody. So you got to fill it with something. And so they get more and more expensive taste, but they got to keep acting and they stop giving a shit about what they are uh, in as long as it pays for them. And it's hard to really argue. If you're going to keep that lifestyle up, that's going to set in. I mean, look at fucking De Niro, for God's sakes. But with Willis, something broke in him, I think. Like the spark went out like that, as opposed to just him getting bored with acting as a creative pursuit. It was in the early 90s, at the after he had burst into mega stardom because of Die Hard, after being a TV regular before that in Moonlighting, he is one of those guys who immediately went to his head and he's like, I'm a god on earth. He, had, he was notorious uh, for bad behavior on sets. Uh, but Die Hard 2 was apparently a huge pain in the ass because of all of Willis's demands, uh, which I think I only know about because it was in the Mad Magazine's uh, par- parody of... Uh, Die Hard 2 that I remember reading as a kid, but one way or another, I found out later it was true. And in addition to that, he has his own artistic ambitions. He's got this movie, Hudson Hawk, that is his baby, that is going to be his uh, full product. Because he, he he thought of the idea, he developed the script with, uh, with uh, Daniel Waters, the writer of uh, Heather's, I don't know if it was his idea, but he was there at every level massaging that script into being. And, and it was his baby. It was his passion project, what they call it in Hollywood. At the very same time, he was putting out blues music and an album called The Return of Bruno. And he had the harmonica. Those two things came out, The Return of Bruno, his blues album, and Hudson Hawk, his big passion project, that had been uh, taken a very long time and gone way over budget. They come out at the same time, and they're both huge bombs, and he is a fucking laughingstock for a little bit. Pulp Fiction helps bring him back. But his big grasp for artistic relevance uh, explodes in his face, leaving only, you know, the hollowness. And so he really went deep into not caring anymore. It probably because it hurt him too much to care. Feel sad. Poor guy. Very tragic.
Another thing that tells you when that you can use to pinpoint when a uh, an actor has checked out, it's when they start playing cops. Now you can give the early days in an actor's career when you kind of have to play a cop to, to be noticed in a film. But once they get into stardom, how often do they have a badge in their movie? How often are they a detective? The more that they're a cop, the more they've checked out. Because those roles are in movies that don't ask anything of them. And I got to give a tip of the cap to uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who has almost never played a cop in his career. He's, he's duly designated federal marshal in Shutter Island. And, of course, he's an undercover uh, state trooper in The Departed. But where there's no movie where he's just like an on-the-duty cop. Another guy like that is George Clooney. I think the closest thing to a cop Clooney's ever played was uh, the Marshall character in Burn After Reading. And, of course, that movie, that isn't about him doing his job, obviously. It's about him not doing his job. Right, like Jay Edgar is the closest thing to DiCaprio in a cop movie. And that is obviously not a traditional uh, 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 depiction of police officers. I mean, Pacino, right? Who are the cops he played early in his career? Serpico, and then in his middle age, fucking Vincent Hanna. And the rest of his uh, output is a bunch of different movies. And like, even his cop movies are interesting, like Sea of Love. But then, boom, 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 boom. He's just a cop. And it was really over for De Niro when De Niro starts playing cops because he's got, there's a reason he didn't play cops until he was in his 50s. It's because he just does not have a cop vibe, except when he's the, uh, the internal affairs cop in Cop Land, which is a wonderful cop performance. You got a chance to be a cop and you blew it. Uh, Eastwood doesn't count, obviously. Because Eastwood's in an entirely different plane. He's playing a different he's doing a different thing than actors are. Like De Niro, uh, Eastwood is embodying an American archetype. And it doesn't really make sense without a gun in its hand. And the movies that he is in where he is not a cop or a cowboy or a, a someone who shoots people for a living. It's weird. <laughs> like, it's still wild to me that he was, he was who Spielberg, or was it, no, it wasn't Spielberg. No, he directed it. Fucking um, Bridges of Madison County, which is just an amazing piece of uh, miscasting. And yeah, I think he directed that, which explains how he got the part. And I think maybe he was trying to challenge himself there. I don't know. But yeah, like Eastwood is, Eastwood is the embodiment of D.H. Lawrence's quote about American where he says, uh, the essential American is a killer, hard and desolate. I think that's the quote. Cold, desolate, and a killer. That is what uh, Lawrence said about American. And uh, that's obviously not true anymore. We've turned our we've let our machines take over for that. We are, we are not hard at all. We are soft butterballs, all of us, even the people who claim to be hard, are in fact the softest of all. 
because their hardness is built upon uh, worship for a national project that is pure hedonistic indulgence. Like even people who will fight for America and, and, and have that desolate stare, they're doing it for, and they're consciously doing it for TGI Friday's coupons, you know? The hardness has been bleached out. But like the 19th century American was Eastwood. And of course, that's who we try to imagine that we are. That's why one of his best films he's ever made is, uh, is one of his most recent, not <laughs> Cry Macho, which is an embarrassment in many ways, although very funny in its own right. Uh, Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell is an amazing movie because it, it it's trying to superimpose the reality of American life through the lens of uh, people who have grown up believing that guys like Eastwood are the iconic American ideal. Richard Jewell is a guy who grew up believing, like everyone of his generation, that Clint Eastwood was what America was uh, was the embodiment of an American. But he is this is backwardly describing this conquest process that by the time of Richard Jewell has been ended. He's now at the end of history. So what, what is he left to do? Throw his weight around pathetically. And then when he tries, and then when he actually accidentally embodies a role of heroism, nobody believes him. And they say, you must've done this. You butterball. That's why Eastwood is, for a guy who is, came into the scene like one-dimensional, he's done it for so long, and he's clearly thought about it while he's doing it. You know, he was, he's directed so many movies that he is aware of how these things go. And, like, his later movies, once he retired from, like, being a big star, like, was starting to look back more on, like, his legacy and to comment on it. They all are this. It's like the... American ideal during the action, the American ideal in the minds of people living through the end of history. American Sniper is like that too. American Sniper is much less successful because uh, Eastwood has ideological blinders to the reality of the war in Iraq that like keep him uh, uh, from seeing like the essential sadness of a character like Chris Kyle because the real Chris Kyle was more like. De Matt Damon in The Informant than Vasily Zaitsev or the, uh, the White Death. He killed a lot of people, yes, but from relative safety in, in, a, in, in, a, in an instance of overwhelming technical uh, superiority uh, and got so bored doing it that he admitted that he started killing people to pad his stats so, because he, so that he had more kills than other, other snipers. That's in his book. He talked. He said outlandish lies about sniping looters from the roof of the Superdome and shooting carjackers in Colorado and having the local police cover it up. He was a fucking con artist. And other guys like him who came later, like Matt Best, are also con artists who then, instead of getting killed by some fucking wacko because you took uh, guns too seriously as a religious uh, institution, sell coffee and sell a brand. Like none of these guys are Eastwood either, but they have Eastwood in their mind. And 
In American Sniper, he's not able to really see the essential absurdity of Kyle. But because Richard Jewell is just this uh, very funny goofball who who Eastwood can't register as like a uh, kindred spirit the way he could a hard-eyed sniper like Kyle, he can see right through it. And it makes it just, it makes, puts all America out there on a vivisection table under fluorescent lights. And this is another reason that Richard Jewell is such a great movie. When I, his later, Eastwood's later oeuvre is, I gotta say, very mixed. There's not a, there's some good movies, but there's a lot of chaff in his last 30 years of filmmaking. I'm sorry, it's just a fact. But, and, but like, honestly, seeing Richard Jewell made me look at his, uh, some of his previous movie, movies differently, and I kind of raised my appreciation. But like, if I'm honest, a lot of those later movies are not very good. And one of the things that makes them hard to watch is their stultifyingly dark uh, sheen, TM Lex G. They, I, 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 I want, my thing about the Eastwood movies was always, they look like they're shot in a coffin. And like that works in some context, but over and over again it becomes deadening. But the the bland uh, like light of uh, office fluorescence that are somehow like darkened and like dimmed by Eastwood's uh, composition, so that like it's never really light anywhere. That's a perfect visual expression of the America that Richard Jewell lived in, while wanting to be. In his head, this icon of an America that doesn't exist anymore. But which made this one? That's the important thing, the dialectical relationship. And the people who fetishize Eastwood and want to go back to them don't realize that that is a mechanism of the very machine that you're horrified by. That Eastwoods can only work for the maintenance of this new machine that they built. I would love to have Lex G on our show, but I really don't think he would come on is the thing. I think he would not want to do it, and I wouldn't want to make him anxious, and I feel like I would. I've always wanted him to have him on a show. I feel bad that we haven't, but really, I don't want to send him off. Because I know it's, it's, it's he's very fragile. I love the guy though. He's he's one of my absolute favorite follows on Twitter. Yeah, he's honestly, if he stopped posting, I would probably get off that site. Somebody asked if I've seen the Devils. Yes, I'm really kicking myself that I forgot to mention the Devils on the Unspooled podcast that we, me and Will did. I, I should have done that instead of the Last Valley, which I saw more recently but didn't really like. The Devils though which happens during the Thirty Years' War, involves Richelieu and Louis Thirteenth as characters, would have been perfect for the slot. It's, a, it's an awesome movie. And it does a great job of materially connecting uh, uh, which, Christ, which frenzies and stuff to their uh, environments like, and, 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 and uh, identifying where power flows. Because unlike most depictions of witch uh, crazes in films, which are very contained and psychological, and, and always and put everything in the context of the uh, individual psyches of the people uh, involved, and, and make it into like a, essentially a question of, you know, 
a, a contagious group groupthink and, and sadism, uh, hysteria, all this stuff. But and they have that perfectly in uh, the witches. They've got uh, I think is it Charlotte Rampling? Somebody plays a repressed young uh, nun who guts the hots for this horny priest, and her repressed lust for him drives her to this uh, fantasy. But the reason the, the movie is very good to show that the reason that it becomes uh, a real accusation that leads to a trial and execution is that uh, Richelieu is trying to uh, undermine the Huguenots in France by uh, dismantling the fortifications that they'd thrown up during the wars of religion and which they'd been allowed to keep as part of the peace that came afterwards. So there was this cold war in France after the end of the wars of religion between the Huguenots and the state. And because they fought this long and bloody civil war, there had been a number of uh, uh, urban fortifications thrown up or taken over by Huguenots and used as base of military operations. And when the war ended, it was agreed that to keep the peace, both sides would also keep their forts so that if anybody tried anything, they wouldn't be unmanned, unhanded. But in the lead up to uh, the La Rochelle showdown, when Richelieu is trying to goad the Huguenots into a response that he can respond to in turn, they start moving to dismantle these uh, castles. And the movie shows that the real reason that, that, that they take this accusation seriously against this priest and it becomes a witch craze is because this guy is sticking up for local Huguenots and uh, resisting the, the state's effort to dismantle their fortifications. So, love that. I also, uh, in the uh, horny nun category, uh, Paul Verhoeven's last, latest film, Benedetta, great, wonderful film. I probably need to see it again for several reasons, one of which that I want to kind of uh, see if I can vibe more with it. I liked it a lot, but I, I don't know if I, it doesn't connect with me with, other Verhoeven. But it's very, very uh, good fun to watch. <laughs> the Little Hours was okay. I feel like there has to be a... There has to be a way to balance in between the two extremes that you see in movies about the medieval or early modern era. Uh, do you try to recreate period dialogue or do you intentionally modernize it? I'm wondering if there's a way to get in the middle there, you know, because I feel like either one of them becomes alienating. I always thought that Deadwood handled uh, ornate period dialogue better than almost anything. Yes, it's kind of, you could say it's show-offy, but uh, it really does conform to the written media of the 19th century, which is very important, right? Because we're, not trying, we're never trying to show what really happened. Nobody can do that. We're trying to recreate a, uh, uh, a vision of, of the past that is plausible and legible to a, a modern audience. And that means conveying something of the formality of speech, something of it. So you don't have the way that people didn't talk that fancy in real life at that time, but they talked 
like that in their newspapers, in their books. And so recreate that to recreate how they saw themselves culturally because that's what's being reflected in a, in a show, in a piece of art. Like it's a modern version of that vocabulary. And one of the things that's funny is, uh, obviously, Milch wanted to get across just how vulgar things were there, right? Because this is the place with no laws. Deadwood's got no law. It's illegal. It's an illegal uh, squat in Indian land that has not been ceded by treaty yet. Although uh, Custer uh, is, on behalf of the railroads, uh, literally being paid to make that happen uh, at the same time. Um, that's an interesting thing they don't tell you about Little Bighorn is that Little Bighorn was the result of George Custer going on uh, what was essentially a mercenary raid of the Black Hills to start a war with the Sioux that would lead to the cessation of the Black Hills so they could run a railroad through it. Railroad interests supported that filibuster. And they got what they wanted. It just cost Custer and the entire 7th Cavalry their lives. And also, they also usually forget to mention that before they got to Little Bighorn, the 7th Cavalry fell on a Sioux camp that wasn't defended called Washita Creek and committed a massacre of unarmed civilians. And those are the guys, like, this is the thing. We look back, we look at the characters of the dead-eyed, steely man of destiny that is exemplified by guys like Eastwood on the silver screen, and we respond to eternal truths, eternal values of, like, strength, decency, competence, uh, stoicism. Like, these are actual positive values. They are not toxic masculinity. There's a reason we respond to them on the silver screen, and it's not just propaganda. The reason, the, the, the purpose it's put to is propagandistic, but the archetype itself represents something that's good in us. And the way we remember the settlement of America is guys applying those principles to the world and getting uh, the results. But the fact is, no, all those values were squandered in the name of imperial fucking bloodlust and, and, and twisted to the will of this uh, capitalist machine, this literal machine of a railroad. But people like that existed. People with those values lived and they told themselves that that's why they're acting. And that is... That's what we're sifting through to find when we look at our cultural artifacts of that era and, and, we and the people we identify with and the values we identify with that we try to exemplify. But now look at us. Then we could only do horrible bloodlust with that. If we, if we used it for good, we were destroyed. Or at the very least, our message, our lives were warped against us, forgotten or lied about. That is, you can be valiant. You can be the Eastwood guy with a moral center, but your actions would have been washed away by history or perverted if remembered. Like a guy like John Brown exemplifies a lot of the Clint Eastwood values. 
But at the time, he was not a hero. He was executed by the state instead of being the state's hand. The people who were the state's hand, guys like uh, Robert E. Lee, were slave-whipping psychopaths who were committed to building the world into a giant abattoir, as are our ruling class now. But the churn of history has created a new new people who, who have not experienced the violence of those people, the trauma of fighting for a continent and building it. They're soft babies at the end of history. And when we try to be Eastwood, we end up just squandering our efforts one way or the other. Because the tragedy at the heart of American Psycher, Psycho, or Psycho, yeah, it would have been better named that. The problem with American Sniper is that Eastwood was implying it to be a critique of America, critique of the current world. And from a position of, you know, not just raving reactionary bloodlust, but from, you know, a, a, uh, a response to what he imagines he embodied as a character. And that he saw in Chris Kyle. That a guy's efforts were put to a worthless cause. Because the pitch of American Sniper is Iraq, shithole, disgusting Iraq, was not worth the sacrifice of a guy like Chris Kyle. That's what American Sniper's critique is. But that is warped by Eastwood's ideological blinders. Because he can't see through Kyle the way he could see through uh, Richard Jewell. And he has huge sympathy for Richard Jewell. But he does not believe that Richard Jewell could ever be a hero the way that Chris Kyle could. But Chris Kyle is not a hero. Not like Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell is an actual hero. Eastwood isn't. I'm sorry, uh, Kyle isn't. But Eastwood because of the same ideological process that mystifies all of our relationships to the world around us and that propagandizes everything that we experience uh, in a media context, he can't see that. I've been recommended Queen Margot. I should see it. It's about uh, Catherine de... Or no, yeah. It's about the Medici court in France, I think. I hear you got to see the, the director's cutter. It doesn't count, so that's got to be a pain. Best moment in um, Richard Jewell is when FBI agent John Hamm and Olivia Wilde, who it plays a real piece of work, who was a real reporter who, who broke, broke the Richard Jewell suspect story in Atlanta and who had died after that. She's not alive anymore to defend herself. The movie is very mean to her. 
There's no question about that. There's probably some dramatic license there, but at the same time, you know, he's serving a greater uh, purpose, which is to show how all the institutions that people like uh, Richard Jewell think they're defending. Because remember, he wants to be a cop. He wants to be a defender of this, what's right, as represented by these institutions, law, media, uh, uh, academia, government. He is an agent of the state. He wants to be. He wants to zealously pursue that. But that state is arrayed against him. And so you have to show the reporter as like this awful person. But the way he, he shows the disgust that people like this, college graduates uh, and, and first front of the class smarties like this reporter lady and this FBI agent, because remember, FBI agents have to be like, for a long time, they had to be either lawyers or accountants. And I don't know, I don't know if they need legal degrees anymore, but they're usually, they have to have a college degree. Um, and they're standing there while these rubes, the good people of Atlanta, are doing the Macarena. Because remember, these aren't people with tickets to the, to the Olympics. These are people at the concerts around the Olympic grounds. These fucking hillbillies are doing the Macarena. And Olivia Wilde is trying to kind of flirt with John Hamm. And she's like, come on, dance. And he's like, ugh, I'm bored. Which is such just a bitchy, catty thing to say. Oh, I'm bored. Uh, and then she says, everybody's bored. And then he looks around and he says, they aren't. But yeah, that is that's and he he identified the cultural fissure that will define all politics for the next 30 years, right there. Like in the one that we now live with. We have two two Americas now living in one media bubble, consuming media through one side of a of a mirror. And it turns everything into a reflection of their own aggrieved state within a culture war. That's all that we can see. And then we live our lives in that bubble, looking at our fellow Americans through this thing with essential distrust that then generates this political, this politics of grievance and sadism, where all we can hope to do with our vote and our participation in civic society is to see our opponents suffer. So when like Richard Jewell is the hero, they look at this guy and he's like, this no college hillbilly, this 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 goofus, is not a hero. He cannot be. And of course, you could say like, this is a two way street. You know, like there is an entire hegemonic American power system in our nation's rural and exurban areas, dominated by local political uh, capital extraction regimes that are connected to local power structures of, of uh, economic and political power. The mini, the mini uh, barons of America that we've talked about many times. And they generate their own cultural matrix. And they see everybody else through their own 
dark glass and, and use their power to fuck with them. And so we have these twin narratives about living under the fascist dictatorships of one of the two parties that are both describing a true condition of suppression, a true condition of, of, of capital totalitarianism, where the market has literally overthrown democratic participation at every level of society. But we can only describe it culturally through one or two lenses. It's the only way that everyone will recognize what we're talking about, and it will, it will be repeated through the system. Money will be placed around repeating it to the system. It will, money, there will be investment of capital allotted to reproducing the message. If it can be put out onto the, the into the ether with any kind of uh, resonance, it has to be legible through one of these two frameworks. So saying, no, this is one totalitarian uh, system. This is one structure of domination that can only be confronted by uh, like a direct attack on its economic basis. that nothing else will do. No other effort will be useful than that effort. Nothing that says that will resonate. Forget if it can be said, it will be smothered and turned over and diluted. Because what incidents and output, cultural output, are what define this space. It's incidents that are the result of random chance plus government action, and then uh, spectacles in the, in the form of uh, both things that just randomly occur, like trending topics around specific events, or media representations of events. And media representations of events require money, capital. And the need for money, the need for capital, the need for it to appeal to a market that has already been divided along these lines. You don't have to be a propagandist to want to keep this stuff off, the, off of television and put money behind it. It is a bad investment. No matter how much people say they want it, and not enough of them will pay the money necessary to make it worthwhile to, to, pay, to produce anything that does, tells them something that depressing. Because that tells them, oh, if we don't have a completely different po politics, we will never be free of this. Who wants to hear that? No one wants to hear that. It is not something that is pleasant to associate yourself with. And what are you paying attention to media for, if not for pleasure? The hedonic calculus of the uh, uh, atomized American subject is the thing that makes pop, uh, the, the thing that actually imposes pro, uh, a, a uh, rigid authoritarian structure of speech. We talk about how there's free speech. No, money does that. Money does the job of a anti-free speech regime that everyone's so scared of being imposed. It already exists in the form of money. And people recognize that. They're like, oh, this thing isn't fair. But they never recognize that the thing that stacks it is preferences, people's preferences multiplied over a whole society. Everyone acting in their best interest and what that is, is pleasure, indulgence, 
because that is what is available. The, the, the fruits of living a life committed to connection and love are militated against. We have them, but in, in a bedraggled format. What we can engage in and what we can pursue heedlessly and with full vigor is self-pleasure. That means our media consumption is going to be that which pleases us. And being told that there's no hope and being given a story that does not have a convincing moment of triumph for humanity is not going to be something that we want to listen to. I know I don't. So because we are given freedom to choose whatever we want and what we want has been determined, oh, we choose the same thing over and over again. And because we don't think things are going well, we're chafing against that and we want a vocabulary of resistance. But all the meaningful ways to resist cannot be accommodated. Now you have the true reflection. Hey, class domination is what's doing this. Economic relations are what's doing this. These must be attacked. There is another answer you can come to that the media will not accept for its own reasons that boil down to nobody wants to hear that in large enough money, in a large enough numbers to make it worth the while. That's the important part. This is not that there's no market. It's that over time, this market costs me more money than it makes me. And that is to see this horrible situation and say the unsayable, which is it's because of uh, the racial uh, distinction between people. The, the racial distinct, racially distinct uh, 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 groups of people cannot accommodate each other. Uh, and therefore one group or another of them uh, must be made much must win inevitably. And we have to pick which one we want to win. Are we going to pick the one that we are? Or are we going to root for the other side that's going to kill us? That's the mindset. Please don't cap any of this. I'm saying I don't believe this. I'm saying this is a message that you, this is an answer to the question of what, what is this thing that we find ourselves in that gives us only misery, no matter how democratically it's aligned. But this is the thing that you can't get out there and you can't concentrate capital around. And people point to that and say, well, that means it's true. And no, it's not true. What it is, is it's not profitable in the long run. Like they, they really do think that because I am uh, saying uh, these based racial truths and I'm getting banned, that means that I am a threat to this capitalist world order. Well, that is really like thinking that if I if they call the cops when I jack off in a bank lobby, it's because I'm going to be a threat to capitalism. Like for much deeper reason, no appeal to race is going to get anything other than what's that? Oh, one faction or the other of cat of the bourgeois to take over and what are they going to do death cult shit because that's all they can do they cannot address any root problem they cannot address any of your based complaints about the capitalist order i'm sorry they cannot do it they are of it they are inextricably linked from it they are they are fucking um psychic uh uh 
They're psychically fused to capitalism. The petty bourgeois are. As a group. And they're the ones who are going to exercise political authority in any system that we live in, no matter how democratic we think it's going to be. Unless, again, we change that system. The constitutional order can only produce a dictatorship of one segment or the other of an insane, deranged, schizophrenic, petty bourgeois. So if you want to, if your idea is, I'm going to, we can't save everybody, but we can save the whites. All you're saying is, I will supply, supply critical support to the Republican Party. Just as at the end of the day, if you're saying we're going to defend the Democrats or, or we're going to fight like an electoral battle through institutions, you are saying, I am an adjunct of the Democratic Party. They are, they do have that in common. Now you can say, given the outlay of social forces, the Democrats are least bad and give us more time to uh, organize against like the snapping of the of the mousetrap. And there's an argument for that. What there is no argument for, though, is that the, the Republican Party in power will only be the mental breakdown of the lower bourgeois, which means capitalism, which these people are psychically fused to, will be defended till its extinction. So that is the final answer that I have to any based nationalist dipshits. You are headlong racing towards rooting for a nuclear war with China. And of course, the joke is so are people who associate with the Democrats psychically and like think that their vote matters in some way. I mean, Trump is... Trump's agenda, if he gets reelected, uh, yeah, re for the third time reelected, uh, is genuinely stunning. And I'm going to talk about this on the show on Monday uh, or at some point. It's blowing my mind. Uh, he's trying to do like the full American system, protectionist tariffs, develop like uh, uh, war like the civil war the the U.S. civil war economy, but directed against China basically. Break off trade ties to China. Build everything that they used to build in China in the United States. I mean, that is trying to create like a, a mid-20th century style war economy. And then who is this machine pointed toward? Because it has to be pointed towards somewhere. There is a teleological structure to one of these emergency war economies, like, say, the one that uh, Hitler built. It is that you eventually have to start destroying some of this, this uh, military uh, capital because you get, as in any other type of capitalism, capital overproduction. you got to start destroying some capital and expropriating capital with... Uh, in and turning imperial domination into profits, super profits. And so Trump's idea of creating like freedom cities full of like breeding young people who all work in like a super deregulated giant we work space and they're paid to have kids. This like do it, it the uh um 
the seastead brought home. Because remember, in the 90s, the libertarians started trying to create independent cities floating in international waters. And there have been several attempts at this. And Peter Thiel is big into this. But, you know, that is a long shot. They have a lot of money. They're not going to spend it all on that. Backing Trump has now asked, backed, asked them into proposing seasteads in America. These are going to, you know they're going to be special enterprise zone type deals where with no minimum wage. Uh, and are going to be like physically divided, segregated between knowledge workers and uh, service providers. And this will be a, a imposition, this would be an imposition of mid-20th century effective racial segregation. It wouldn't be actual racial segregation. There would be no formal segregation. There would be no uh, covenants. In fact, segregation would probably be illegal. You wouldn't be able to to, uh, to um, refuse to, to rent to somebody. But the underlying income requirements to live in space X versus space Y would filter things towards a racial caste with, you know, uh, blurry borders at the edge. And, he, and even if you think that's a good idea, and there are plenty of based socialists who think it is because, hey, at least he's talking about building things in the United States again. What does that leave us with China? The big reason we can't have our war with China, realistically, is because of our degree of, of, of economic uh, interlocking structure. Like, we are economically inextricable from China. It is, in many senses, in many ways, one market. And so it is a political unit in, in a real sense. And that it makes it difficult to imagine a real escalation of violence. But if those sinews are broken, the problem is the patient will start bleeding on the table, out on the table immediately. So it will strike out. Because to do what Trump is talking about means you would have to be in like a catastrophic economic freefall to allow for that degree of uh, federal expenditure. And maybe that'll happen. Maybe between now and Election Day 2024, there is finally that economic Ragnarok that guys like Jerome Powell seem to be pining for. And if that happens, maybe you can actually start trying to build these fucking cities. If he gets in. And maybe if things are that bad and Brandon is that incapable of doing anything about it, which we know he would be, because he can't be anything else. Well, then, Sonny, maybe you get your chance to see it happen. And uh, the first ribbon-cutting coincides with the first launching of the nukes. And assuming you don't have a total nuclear war with China, and maybe you wouldn't, 
maybe the reality of pressing the button would prevent a button from being pressed, as long as we haven't AIified the command chain too much and let Skynet take over. Let's just say that we are, for argument's sake, able to stop an escalation to nuclear war. But we carry out like a heavy-duty land war in the Pacific. That would have the benefit of destroying a lot of capital. And if you destroy capital, then you create the conditions for that real business cycle to kick in. Because that is the model of... Uh, Austri the Austrian model of the uh, of the economy is that capitalism, the markets, are a natural force because these guys have basically assimilated uh, capitalism to its fullest extent. They've they've taken the imaginative capacity of capitalism as the extension of uh, medieval Christianity. If they've taken that seriously, they can wrap it around this structure and turn it into the natural world as such. And they can divide the economy from the government in a Manichaean fashion and say, this is a parasite on that, as opposed to the fact that they are inextricable and the same thing. And any distinctions you want to draw between them are temporary and uh, basically just to get a better look at it. They, they cannot be taken as real things. Uh, the Austrian school takes that to its full conclusion. And of course it can because it's a fantasy. Nobody ever is acting like that's real, but people are motivated by its uh, activist logic, which is accelerate capitalist uh, rates of uh, profit, basically. Uh, get away from the... Because remember, capitalism throws up these structures to allow it to work, the governing structures. Like, the, the, the post-Civil War state that we have inherited, the, the, the administrative state built in the, during the Gilded Age, uh, was a situation where the capital that had built up over the Civil War and then was then uh, invested in the construction of our rail infrastructure built the American administrative state. It, it essentially hired people to carry out the role of government, and that has been what the government has done ever since. That's why they started taking a document, the Constitution, which already enshrined private property and extending that logic to the personhood of corporations. This is metaphysical stuff, and it's all grounded in what the Austrians are able to, because they are mentats of this shit, they're able to meld, mind meld with capitalism and see it from capitalism's point of view, which is the economy goes up, it goes down. The beast consumes, and it is consumed. You start building a bunch of stuff, people stop buying it, that causes a, a, a crisis, there is a deflation, then it's built back up, having learned. And every step is an evolution towards a perfection. Now, the human toll of that, which is every one of those collapses, is thousands of people committing suicide, people losing their homes, people starving. How... It gets worse the farther back you go, obviously. Like, you get to the point where this is causing people to kill each other in orgies of violence in some cases. That outcome is, to the Austrian, beside the point. It doesn't matter if that happens or not. That's what, what God has decreed. And for you to try to mitigate it is to commit sacrilege, in a real sense. Like, that is the, that's what the Austrians think. But that's because it is a 
It is a schizophrenic delusion of the middle-class mind created by the contradictions inherent in trying to turn the market into a god that by its definition was the uh, social uh, expression. God in the Middle Ages was the social expression of the dream for uh, universal harmony. That is what Christianity expressed, but that and it, and it, it had and it was, uh, you know, on top of that uh, Abrahamic literary tradition of we will like read ourselves into the belief in a God collectively, and then we will live our belief together, and that will harmonize everything between all people. That strained under, it was always under the stress of the reality of living in Europe, and then that stress caught up to it and was exacerbated, and it's, and that structure was destroyed in the 17th century. But a new God was born. But its social logic is still Christian, which means that everybody who has that in them is basically a schizo. And that schizophrenia is going to manifest itself depending on how much pressure it's put under. There you go. Got some light back in here. And of course, liberal Keynesianism has its own fantasies at the heart, at the heart of it that can't confront the deeper reality that the uh, Austrians will. Like Keynesianisms are Austrians in denial. Uh, as long as you have accepted the inviability and eternity of the market, then uh, you will be constrained. Marxism, though, is, is the extension of that vision of universal harmony, the survival of it within the heart of capitalism, and in fact built by capitalism to supersede capitalism. You really can look at it as like Moses, Christ, Marx, and then Lenin, but honestly, really Trotsky. And the fact that Trotsky did end up getting a pick axe through the head and his name sort of tarnished by his legacy turned into sort of a, a joke, it kind of shows you, you know, uh, what happened? We were, uh, the spark was put out socially, reproducibly, but not individually. We all still hold the spark within us. And it's our job to reignite it. And a new prophet will emerge. Because the Russian Revolution was Trotsky's. It was really, it was Lenin's, and it couldn't have happened without Lenin, but Lenin as avatar and accelerant, but as a idea. The Rush and as a executable plan, the Russian Revolution was Trotsky's. This is not something I think that can be argued. 
when you look at the fact that in 1905, Lenin wasn't even in St. Petersburg during the revolution, but Trotsky is there literally building the Petrograd Soviet that will be the model of social organizing that overcomes the Tsarist state in 20, 1917. Like he is there to building the model, which is a Soviet, the committee. And it's his, frankly, uh, supernatural charisma that holds it together. He is there at the Petrograd Soviet speaking every day, holding giant crowds together, fusing experience into a ball of action. People who trust one another, who have been forged by having heard the fucking words from the mouth of the prophet. He was the Logos for fuck's sake. But he was embodied in Lenin, who showed up in St. Petersburg, and while everybody else was going, um, I don't know, what? Said, no, we're doing this. It's happening now. This is our chance. And Trotsky did execute the St. Petersburg Revolution, too. He was uh, the guy whose plan it was, who coordinated it among the military organizations. And then literally he commanded the Red Army during the fucking Civil War. He won the war. He was the revolution. Lenin coordinated. Lenin suppressed the egos of the rest. Lenin embodied the project. But it was Trotsky's. He was the soul of the machine. The problem is then, after they win, they don't get the promised land. Because remember, he's a prophet. He's here to tell you that the day, of, the day has come, just like Jesus did. But what happened? It didn't. Didn't happen. Prophecy failed. And prophecy will fail and continue to fail until it doesn't. But that does not invalidate the prophet. Because we live in the world they build. It doesn't matter if they were charlatans or anything. It doesn't matter if their words were lies. It doesn't matter if their miracles were frauds. We live in the world where those are real. But they made because they made them real through their action. And Trotsky did that until he couldn't anymore. Because once you don't get the world revolution that they all depended on, there's tons of quotes. You don't have to argue with me on this. This is not no one, I don't understand the people. If you understand that the Bolsheviks themselves thought that the Rush German Revolution had to follow the Russian to validate the Russian Revolution, had to. In their minds, the Russian Revolution as a project would fail if there was no German Revolution, which means everybody who came after to defend the Soviet Union is a revisionist, which makes it hilarious when unrestricted, like, uh, uh, internet Stalinists call people revisionism, revisionists. As soon as you have a, a situation where there's a fucking Soviet, Soviet power in the absence of a German re Revolution, you don't have what the Bolsheviks imagine. But what do you do? You, how do you climb off the horse? And there were several quite answers to this question that were available at the time. The two main ones were uh, do the job of capitalism and uh, uh, pull the, pe the peasants from their land. Do the job of uprooting the peasantry, which all capitalist states have to do, and which is the crime, crime of the capitalist states, that all the other crimes are built on top. We got to do it. That was the view of the left. That was the view of... Uh, Trotsky, among others, with uh, Zinoviev. And, uh, then you had Bukharin, the right deviationists, 
who say that's not our job historically. Doing that job invalidates the rest of our job. We can no longer be the thing that we were trying to bring into being if we do that. So we have to buy off the peasants, even at the cost of us becoming capitalists, which, you know what, maybe we won't. So let's keep it, give it a try. Now, I don't think Bukharin would have gotten what he wanted. I don't think they would have stepped down peacefully. The thing would have collapsed under the weight of the contradictions inherent in trying to do that, especially with outside pressure on the Soviets. But who knows? Maybe that means that the headquarters of opposition to capitalism can be manifested somebody better than the fucking ass end of the Soviet goddamn Russian Union. Maybe the German uh, uh, response to the Great Depression isn't the Nazis. It's the unified working class of Germany taking power. Now, you can't blame the Russians for doing that because they didn't know it was going to happen. But you also can't take these things and remove them from context of each other. Now, that was a big controversy in Germany in the 80s, the, the history war. Uh, and it was about what to what degree the, the, the Nazis were response to the rise of the Bolsheviks. Uh, and it was coded through this, this reactionary lens where everybody who was saying that was a reactionary who was at the very least sympathetic to the fascists and probably just crypto-Nazis. But that's because you're trying to filter this through some moral lens instead of looking at it just as a matter of uh, action and reaction and, and physics. It's nobody's fault. That didn't mean that the, 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 that the Nazis were good to do what they did. The deformed worker state of the Soviet Union was still superior in every way to the capitalist West. It was. But maybe without that boogeyman, there is no split in the working class of the rest of Europe. And again, the Bolsheviks thought it was going to happen. They thought, that they assumed it was going to happen. Because why? They were fired by Trotsky's prophetic vision. And you need a prophetic vision to get across the finish line. But then history takes over. And you have to respond to history. And the response that you could have predicted happening is that people in power don't want to give it up. And the thing is, though, Trotsky could never have carried out what Stalin did because it would have broken his vision of what communism was. And so instead, he just froze. And he waited to be removed from power because he didn't have the will to go through with what he knew had to happen. If the Bolshevik state was to persist, and that's the big if that we can talk about. He wasn't psycho enough. At the end of the day, it, it, it just so happened that while this bunch of uh, enthusiastic, prophecy-addled, Honestly, mystic Christians, the Bolsheviks, these are, are uh, messianic Jews, however you want to want to put it, like first century Christian type guys, Anabaptists. That's who the Bolsheviks were. Of course, Protestants. Socialism is the continuation of Protestantism. 
but Catholics first, or Orthodox, whatever. Grounded church, abstract church. Eventually, the market, it becomes your God, one way or the other. He is either God or he's Satan, and he has to be grappled with or submitted to. Those are the choices. And we live now at the end of history where everyone at every level of power has made the choice against their own will in many cases to worship the God of capital. So instead of allying with Bukharin and backing the peasantry, which he should have probably done, he just waited for the one, the serpent in the garden, this thug, this guy who was not some uh, uh, belief-filled uh, vessel who had experienced some combination of, uh, of in, unjust treatment by the state, uh, either as a dissident or as a worker, because there were workers at the top level of the Bolsheviks, uh, and also just fire and all of that fired by like a shared religious view of humanity. Stalin was a a lumpen proletarian thug. He was a gang leader. But again. If Trotsky, the only guy who could have maybe steered the thing away from the bloodshed that was to come, if Trotsky can't do it and he's going to help eliminate Bukharin and then stand there with a bunch of people who he can't lead, if that's the only guy left at that point, of course you pick Stalin. Of course you do socialism in one country. What's, there's At this point, there's no alternative. And this is why Trotskyists to this day split off all the time. Because they are waiting for deliverance to save them from having to make, to having to go against their beliefs. And he did it. He, the mad lad did it. He created a deformed worker state, to use Trotsky's terms, that was in the capitalist world system, that extracted surplus, but really did that through a state mechanism that socialized profit for the most part. It was a genuine alternative to Western capitalism. But instead of, as it was envisioned by Marx and Trotsky and Lenin, which would be a capitalist, a state capable of industrially producing and capturing surplus, would have been on top of a sophisticated machinery of capitalist, uh, capitalist production that had been built up over generations of dispossession of peasantry, both in Europe and outside of it. Primitive accumulation. But we didn't get that. We got this other thing. This, this machine belching blood. But what else was going to be able to fight off the annihilating threat of fascism? That's why I think that retrospectively, 
everybody who was in the Communist Party in the United States and who stuck with them through, the, through World War II was correct to do so. I don't think that any amount of horrors that you can list about Stalinism can change the basic fact that by that point in world history, you had a global, the first global crisis within an economic system because there had never been a truly global economy before. You'd had global trade networks, but nothing like what we had by the mid-20th century. Global economic crisis and two social structures extant. One, settler colonial capitalism in North America and uh, imperial finance capitalism in, in Europe. Extended all over the world, dominating and warping every other surface of the globe. Spreading everywhere, opening everywhere, defaming everything, melting everything solid into, oil, into uh, air. And then you had the Soviet Union, built on bloodshed, but not fundamentally enthralled to capital and uh, profit, private profit, capital as a uh, social life. Because that is what builds, what, that, what maintains capitalism is people going to jobs, filling holes in a machine and pressing buttons, connecting relays. And they do that because of the social context that pushes them in that direction. It animates people. And they had stomped that out in the Soviet Union. But they still had to extract profits. They still had to exploit labor because they were in a capitalist world system and competing with other capitalist powers. That meant that they were bound eventually to be destroyed. It would never be able to win because it could never uh, defeat capitalism on those terms. For a few years after the Soviet Union, after the Second World War, it kind of looked like Khrushchev was going to do it. People hate him now because look what happened. But uh, that push, the switch from production to uh, consumption in the Soviet economy that people blame Khrushchev for and call him a revisionist for doing was inevitable because they had built this system and were now part of a global economic order headquartered in the West that was in the process of depoliticizing its working class through the distribution of uh, surplus, taking profit that had been private and, public, pub, and, and giving it uh, publicly in the form of subsidies for uh, homes, uh, high union wages, whatever. What were they going to do with that money? They were given products to buy with it. And that can replace the lost political power you had in your workplace. Well, if you, if you allow more workers in the Soviet Union to have workplace power, they're going to want to work less. They're going to want to be spend less time doing stuff they don't want to do, as any human would. That is how they will, um, uh, that's one of the ways that they will factor their self-interest in running their economic activity. But the state can't afford that because that could reduce profits, just as it would under capitalism. 
Now, in the Soviet Union, those cap those profits are being put towards the war effort, are being put towards the the the, the people's business, but they are still they still deny the possibility of creating real workplace democracy in the Soviet Union. So what do they have to, the only thing they can do is match, match the Western powers on their own terms and provide in exchange for workplace control, the ability to enjoy consumer goods. And once you do that, and you take conf- uh, uh, real military conflict off the table, which you have to do because of the bomb, which is why the bomb is what dooms us. I think David Lynch has got that one nailed. The bomb is what dooms us. As soon as the bomb is built in a capitalist state, it ensures that capitalism will never be defeated uh, from within because somebody will push the button to destroy it, uh, to prevent it from coming into public hands before that happens. Because capitalism is fundamentally a death drive to try to, re- to, try to re- uh, deal with that fundamental contradiction of a, a belief in God market uh, that is divorced from sociology of, sociality of any kind. And that means that if you've gotten rid of sociology as a concept, you've gotten rid of reconciliation. And so that means death cannot be imagined. So it must be sublimated. And so the prospect of, of, uh, of communism, even if it would liberate you in real way and transform you in revolutionary ways towards love, that would mean the annihilation of your ego self, which you worship in place of the God that is absent. That's as worse than death. That is submission to an other that can only destroy us. It can only torture us. It can only send us to hell because look what we've done. We cannot be reconciled. So we must be destroyed. So that when it comes, it comes from the side and it comes in the, in the fight and it comes without uh, a chance to reflect upon it, which is what we really fear is, is reflection. And capitalists, people who actually do capitalism every day, are further from the light than anybody. So this prospect of, of losing their uh, the centrality of their personhood is to annihilate their sense of self. And that is so scary that they would rather be annihilated from without. Because the reason that we the Cold War ended without an exchange of nukes is because as hor- as horrible as the Soviets were portrayed for what they did in the 30s, it was still too humane of a system to countenance nuking anybody. Like when they when they launched the, when they when they detonated the uh, the uh, Soviet H bomb, Khrushchev was beside himself for like a week. He was nauseous. And if you look during the course of the of the uh, of the Cold War, there are three or four occasions, uh, at least two that I know of, where the discretion of a single Soviet officer prevented nuclear war from happening. During the Cuban Missile Crisis, the political commissar, who you'd think would be the most like Soviet version of a Dr. Strangelove, uh, Buck Turgidson, uh, Jack D. Ripper type, on a Soviet sub, uh, uh, 
uh, overruled the order to launch a launch a missile during the blockade showdown during the Cuban Missile Crisis. A political officer. Imagine what the political officer, if we'd had one in the 1950s and early 60s, uh, would have done in that case. Watch the film uh, Crimson Tide for any idea. He'd be dying to launch the nukes. Blast off. And then in the 80s, there was a, uh, a case of a... So there was a reflection from snow or, 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 or a thunderstorm into the lens of a Soviet satellite that made it look like there was an incoming pod of nuclear missiles that were going to hit the, Moscow. And he just said, nope. It was his call whether or not to report those. And he said, nope. Stanislav Petrov, I believe his name was. There's no, I don't think there are any American cases, any that have been revealed. Maybe there are. But in the long run, I just don't trust the American system to put people next to the button as things get worse who aren't more and more psychotically dedicated to worshiping this death machine. MacArthur did want to nuke China. That is correct. He made it his business to try to, to nudge the American government into doing that. And uh, Nixon both mooted the idea of nuking China or nuking. Uh, okay. So Nixon is, is really, it is a miracle. We survived him being president because when he was vice president, he recommended giving the French a nuke to save them at Dien Bien Phu. I don't know how you drop a nuke on a siege line and not kill everybody in the, within the siege lines, but that was his suggestion to Eisenhower. Then when he was president, he both, Talk to Kissinger about nuking North Vietnam, or if not doing that, bombing all of the dams, which would have flooded the countryside and killed millions of people. And he said, I, you got to understand, Henry, I don't give a goddamn about civilian casualties. He also, during Watergate, got shit-faced, and thanks to an incident with an American plane in North Korea, I think, he actually gave the order to nuke North Korea, but they just didn't pay attention to it. They just ignored it. That's why I always imagine the what if, if he had actually been elected president in 1960, how does he not end up pressing the button over the Cuban Missile Crisis? Or at the very least, authorizing an invasion of Cuba that uh, brings the Vietnam War uh, half a world closer to, the, to America's doorstep, right to America's doorstep, and accelerates the, the, uh, the timeline of the 60s by like four years. And MacArthur was very bullish on nuking uh, China during the Korean War. Curtis LeMay, who was uh, head of Strategic Air Command for a long time, bombed the hell out of Japan during World War during World War Two. He was George Wallace's running mate in 1968 and the Third Party American Independent ticket, and he recommended nuking China uh, to win the Vietnam War. Hadn't lost that one. Which is very funny because the Chinese really didn't trust the Vietnamese at all. 
because the nationalist conflict between Vietnam and China trumped their uh, Cold War alliances, which happened basically everywhere, and proved that that the model that emerged out of the mid-century, the, the compromise between uh, nationalism and capitalism was, was the, the curtains for world socialism. But by the mid '60s, uh, the Chinese were pretty were pretty uh, skeptical of Vietnamese. They were getting most of their support from Russia, and in fact, China invaded Vietnam in 1979, I believe. After they invaded uh, Cambodia and overthrew the Khmer Rouge, which is one of the most one of the very few uh, like black and white, good guy, bad guys wars in world history. It's like up there with the American Civil War, the Vietnamese invasion of Cambodia. Because yes, the Cambodians kept bombing the uh, border and making incursions into Vietnam and, and, and poking at them with a stick, but they also did stop them from the, doing the killing fields, you know? And it made China decide to punish them by invading North Vietnam, or uh, Northern Vietnam. At that point, it was one country. And they did take a big chunk of northern, of like forty mile corridor north North Vietnam, northern Vietnam, and they destroyed a lot of the infrastructure there that you know Vietnam took a long time to repair. But they absolutely did not get what they thought they were going to get. It was very similar to two thousand six when the Israelis invaded uh, Lebanon. Like they were able to blow some stuff up and make some incursion, but they could not end up uh, holding anything or changing the dynamic fundamentally. Uh, the Chinese got humbled there. They got their they got punched in the nose. And it's funny, that's the last war that China has fought, too. We talk about how oh, America's military is soy, China's base. Like, they haven't fought a war in 40 years. What was the calculus behind the CIA supporting the Khmer Rouge? They were against the Vietnamese, and therefore the Russians. And at that point, China was following D.C.'s uh, foreign policy line. Uh, it's actually pretty embarrassing. The Maoists don't like talking about it. At least they shouldn't. But in the 70s, uh, the, the Chinese supported the American side in all of the main Cold War hotspots. Uh, and they actually were one of the first governments to recognize Pinochet in Chile after the coup. And so the Chinese are supporting Khmer Rouge along with the United States against the regional rivals of Vietnam and uh, China, or China or Vietnam and Russia. Yeah, the fucking Chinese were on the uh, apartheid side in all the African wars. They were supporting South Africa against Cuba and the Russians. Pretty bad. Not good. I mean, the United States supported Pakistan over India because India was committed to doing uh, a state socialist developmentalist project. And they had the ability to actually carry it off. So they were, of course, not going to support America and the American line uh, universally. They, they were going to have to be negotiated with, whereas Pakistan could be much more easily overawed.
because India was not it was it was softly Soviet aligned, but of course, and that of course also fed into the conflict between the Soviet Union and China because uh, China and India had a border dispute and still do. Those guys will fight each other up in the fucking mountains and kill one another with with fucking like uh, with pipes and shit. So they were close. So the India was close to the, uh, the Soviets, and also was doing wanted to do developmentalism, you know, and uh, didn't they didn't do great? And why? Because they didn't do what the Soviets did. They did not uproot their peasantry. They arrived to Western capitalist nation state status too late to avail themselves of that possibility. That was a 19th century thing. If you tried doing it in the 20th in Asia or in Europe. Uh, or you got your fucking you got checked if to other people than your own, of course, is what I'm saying. The, the the Russians were able to do what they did because they had this massive nation state. They could act act within it independently. But you can't upset the apple cart by invading other countries and taking their shit by the nineteenth by the twentieth century. That's off the table. And so since India gets this, you know, soft democracy instead of a Marxist-Leninist uh, state machine, and it's fueled by, you know, millions and millions of votes to these clientist networks that are all connected to rural village life, never going to uproot the peasantry. Because they got Gandhi instead of uh, Lenin. Or, or rather, I guess there wasn't a Lenin to go with Gandhi. Like uh, like Trotsky had Lenin. And of course, there was still horrifying violence. Like the, the uh, partition of India is, is this, uh, and Pakistan, is a blood-curdlingly horrible historical moment with mass violence, millions killed, pogroms across the border as... as, as People moved in huge populations one way or the other. But that was a nationalist imposition. That was not internal conflict. Internal conflict soothed outward, which meant uh, not developing, which meant allowing rural networks to sustain themselves and not uprooting that fucking peasantry. Because the Marxist vision that, that was the continuation of Christianity and, and, was, and guys like Trotsky thought they had perfected was a situation where capitalism concentrates in one place the machines for human liberation. It builds a technological state structure connected to a regime of actual labor-saving technology. And, 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 and energy technology capable of uh, spreading about, allowing uh, physical labor, basically, to be democratically decided upon. Which you otherwise can't do because everyone's going to vote not to work because work sucks. But that's not going to be developed, you know, uh, uh, it's not going to, Every place in the world isn't going to get that at the same time. One specific point in on Earth is going to get that first. And when it does, its internal politics will become so crisis-ridden that the numerically superior working class and uh, numerically superior working class 
wielding mechanisms of power built within this system takes it over. But then there you've got the rest of the world. What is that, what happens there? In the in the communist horizon, there is that you get a European revolution that then finishes the work started by imperialism, but with the aim of developing peripheral parts of the world economy without exploitation, redirecting surplus created at the center outward, democratically, starting with Russia, Germany taking its capacity, sending it over to Russia. Because we had sort of a, something like a peasantry, but we never had to, do, uh, I mean, they weren't really peasants. They were, you know, this American yeoman thing, whatever. But uh, they were landowners, small landowners, and there were tons of them in this country. And they've now mostly been replaced by agri agribusiness conglomerates. But they went peacefully because they were mostly kicked off the land by uh, advances in tractor technology. Like the, the, one of the biggest things that caused the great migration of uh, Southern blacks to America, uh, in America to Northern cities was the introduction of uh, machine harvesting of cotton. Yeah, it was racist, but it had been racist there for generations. It's never not been racist. In the 20s, it was racist, and there were less jobs to go for people to work the fields. Now, under capitalism, those people are dispossessed. Under communist development, those uh, tractors come in, and they allow people who still live on the land and live with each other communally to enjoy the fruits of that. And to allow the social structures that exist to remain as they are and to be integrated into socialism, not having to be rendered into pieces by capitalism. But we miss that chance. We're not in the world where that happens. I do kind of think there is one where it does, but that doesn't really mean anything. It's just gibberish. It's all in our heads, but what isn't? But I do think there is one. We're not in it, though. Instead, the entire world had to be uprooted. And now we have to reforge civic bonds and ideas of what harmonious relationship to the world around us is. And then live those values. It's a very tall order. But it's essentially meaningful. Maybe we respond to the, the crisis of the 21st century by burying these archaic social forms and rebuilding in a collaborative fashion. Taking the machines that are left, the, the capacity that remains, uh, and democratically wielding them. The only problem is, is that there's no way you get that without huge, 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 horrifying loss of life. And collapse of social structures in huge parts of the world.
But for me, if you imagine there is a horizon beyond that possibility, which is all we can ever fear, right? That's as much as we can fear. We can't always, we can't go to the world blows up. That's easy. Collapse is as far as we can take our imaginations. And even if we accept what that means, if we look at history, people have lived in those conditions before, lived through those conditions before. That is what human existence has been. We're only horrified beyond mind of it because we cannot conceptualize it because we are uh, protected from it. We haven't lived close enough to the bone. Those of us who tell our cultural stories again and move the cultural wheels. And so the prospect of that becomes, oh, I got to roll up into a ball. No, we had and Phil lived through more. We have to have faith in ourselves. And if you have an idea that this, that what I've been talking about is possible, then you have to have a faith that it can happen at any point. You're stuck with that. And the problem with that is that it, it implies, hey, I have to direct my actions in one way or the other. I have to do something that conforms to these beliefs. And I know that my I struggle and I get despondent because I don't know what to do. But I also have enough in my life that tethers me to uh, safety and, and, and warmth and conviction uh, that I can keep going. So yeah, I'm going to choose to love, as lame as that is, it's a, it's a punt, but we're all punting. We're all punting here. It's all punting here. The real action is not going to be, and can't be processed that way. And we can only come to terms with what that means. We have to cut a lot of connections we have, a lot of libidinal connections we have between our consumption and our lives. Uh, and it's painful, and it, it, it feels like an existential threat to who we are as people, but there's something on the other side of it that's better. There's a person on the other side of that that is still you, but capable of much more than you could ever imagine that you could be. That sounds incredibly cheesy, and I'm very sorry. It sounds like some Tony Robbins shit. Uh, very embarrassing, but you know what? What else do we have at this late date? We're just cheering each other up, psyching each other up, so that we can put our fucking shoulder to the door jam when time comes. That's it. Bye.